You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We would like to thank Warby Parker for their continued support of SpyCast. You'll hear more about this great company later, but first, let's meet our guest. So we're joined today by David Rolfe, who spent 23 years as a CIA case officer. 22 of those in the field are in training, so not a lot of time at headquarters. Uh, this was a man who spent time as chief of station in East Berlin and chief of station in Moscow later in his career. And his first tour was in Moscow in 1980. So this is somebody that we can certainly talk to about operating in denied areas. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. It's a real uh, pleasure to be here. I, uh, uh, I would make one minor correction. I actually arrived in Moscow in 79. Oh. So uh, but uh, just, uh, yeah, yeah. That, well, it's good to know, get, get, getting dates right. I'm a historian. I should probably yeah. be able to do that. Um, let me ask you about what got you in intelligence first place. But the CIA wasn't the first place that you actually did intelligence work. You were an Army intelligence officer prior to that. What, number one, what led you to do that? Um, number two, what made you want to transition to CIA from Army intelligence? Well, probably, uh, you know, the, uh, the main factor was the, uh, the Vietnam War uh, and a thing called the draft. So when I finished uh, college, uh, the, uh, the draft letter arrived with a... I guess they called it a lottery number at the time, and uh, I decided instead of waiting for the draft lottery to uh, enlist. So I, I went to the uh, uh, enlistment center and we got talking about specialties and the, uh, the sergeant there said, well, you know, maybe you uh, think about going into intelligence. What I really wanted to do was get more Russian language training. So I talked him into uh, uh, sending me to Monterey to, to study Russian, and after that, uh, it led into intelligence training, and, uh, and I spent uh, the rest of my active duty time in the military uh, in, uh, in uh, the human intelligence field. 
Because your BA is in Russian studies, your MA is in Russian history. So there's a lot of kind of kind of have a foundational, you know, you're set in that direction from an early period. Was that something that because of the Cold War, because of kind of growing up at the time that you did, that you were, you were very interested in the, the Russian problem? Kind, kind of all of that. My, my father was career military, and uh, it, it happened that, uh, uh, you know, prior to high school, I guess you'd say junior high school, that time frame, uh, he was assigned in Germany uh, with the military, and we were on the Czech border. Uh, his unit was... Uh, responsible for border duty with uh, Czechoslovakian German border. And uh, he would take me out uh, on uh, multiple occasions to just show me his duty station out on the border. And as a basically a young adult, I, I would see some things that fascinated me. Uh, uh, barbed wire fences and uh, guard towers and dog runs and armed guards and and, uh, you know, in, in speaking with my, my dad, uh, you know, and in, in trying to have him explain what all that was about, uh, you know, I'd, I'd take away bits and pieces like, uh, you know, on the other side of that fence, they have no freedoms. They can't they have freedom of travel, freedom of expression. The whole idea of what was on the other side of that fence became quite a, a fascination and a, and, a, and a little bit of a mystery to me. And um, I know it maybe sound a little bit uh, on the romantic side, but uh, but as I went on through high school and into college, uh, my my interest in learning more about what was on the other side of that right. fence grew, and uh, I can't say I was committed to an intelligence career when I was in the eighth grade, but it had a fascination for me, and I, and I pursued it, and uh, you know the more the deeper I got into it. The, the more I decided to devote my career to it. And it probably uh, goes to answering or addressing that question that you brought up, uh, how did I go from the military into the agency? Um, when I finally finished my active duty uh, uh, military service after about four years, um, the Vietnam War was shutting down and they were, they were letting people out right and left, uh, I happily went back to graduate school and I thought my career was going to lie in academia, and and and, but uh, you know, uh, finishing my academic uh, pursuits, I, I I had this kind of longing to want to get back into that intelligence field that I had started in the military, mm -hmm. and and the military was not an option for me at that time. The military was cutting back right and left, right. and uh, to be honest, I had always thought, as a lot of folks do coming out of the military, that. Uh, you know, the place to pursue, if you want to pursue a career in human intelligence, really get into that career field, the place to do it is the agency. And so um, that led to an application, and hey, you know, the rest is history, as they say. How much did 1975 affect you, the Church Pike, you know, finding out all this, the, the shenanigans the CIA had been doing in the 50s and 60s? It, that's, you came in at an interesting time, really, right on the in the wake of that. Yeah, well, I mean... I was aware of it, and I, th I think if anything, and I know this is going to sound like sacrilege, but it, 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 if anything, the whole idea of what they were doing made me feel a little bit violated, and I wanted to defend the agency. I mean, one of the first books I read was The Man Who Kept the Secrets, 
uh, about uh, Richard Helms, and uh, and I thought that was a very noble thing he did, uh, not lying to Congress, but just but saying no, just right? saying no. Yeah. I'm not going to answer those questions, and uh, so I, you know, I, uh, I I can't say that I was in, inspired negatively by those uh, committee hearings, but um, you know, I I certainly felt uh, probably more defensive than many people, and. Uh, so it was a combination of wanting to see is is all of that true, and and if it is true, let's figure out the reasons why people were doing it, and let's try to refine our approach. Right. But but the other thing you have to realize too is that a lot of the things we learned in the Church and Pike uh, committee hearings was uh, abuses that had to do with. Uh, uh, you know, drug use and, mm -hmm. and, and had to do with uh, the involvement of American citizens and had to do with perhaps uh, maybe at a, at a stretch Cuba and exploding cigars right. and that sort of thing. Uh, whereas my interest in clandestine human intelligence and in pursuing a career in the agency had far more to do with my fascination with the Soviet Union, which was a, a bona fide uh, enemy of the United right. States. It was the, the evil empire and you know I remember speaking to one of my early supervisors and uh, in the agency and you know saying you know why is there such a this is in terms of devotion of time and effort and resources to the Soviet Union. Not that I needed any confirmation from him but his response was the Soviet Union is the one country in the world that can destroy the United States with the push of a button. He's a little bit facetious, but that's true. Uh, like today, we have the threat of international terrorism, and uh, and uh, you know that is a, a common enemy that uh, that we can focus our efforts on and uh, and our attention uh, to, and to a great extent, uh, the Soviet Union was that way during the Cold War, and so so the, the involvement I had and and uh, the involvement that I that encouraged me to join the CIA had nothing to do with the, the, the real main issues of the Church and the Pike Committee. Yeah, you made an interesting distinction that a lot of people don't grasp, certainly within the kind of the civilian world, is you're a human intelligence person. Most of Church and Pike was focusing on covert action and yes. in history yes. of covert action, like, you know, Mosaddegh and going back in the 50s mm -hmm. and 60s. You know, there wasn't a lot in there other than perhaps spying on some domestic targets that yes. the CIA wasn't supposed to about abuses in intelligence collection That's overseas. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, so there is a distinction that a lot of people don't make that I think you've just made now. Let me ask you, would you were you a pipeliner in a, in a very specific sense? You, you joined CIA with CIA's express intent to send you to Moscow. Uh, actually, and I, I, I joined the CIA uh, to, uh, to get involved in the Directorate of Operations. I certainly, in the back of my mind, the Soviet Union was a place I wanted to focus, but there was no assurance or any kind of uh, agreement or anything that, uh, that I would uh, be uh, working against the Soviet Union. I do remember that by the time I finished my initial training as a career trainee, a CT in the agency, um, you come to a point you're down in the training and they ask you to fill out this form that gives you three choices. What are the divisions that you'd like to target? 
And uh, you know, some people put, well, I'd like to go Middle East division, and second choice would be East Asia division or whatever. And, and my choices, I can remember distinctly, SE, my first SE, choice, SE, SE, and SE, three, three, uh, and and that was it. And uh, fortunately, I found support in SE division for that. Uh, the, the common common uh, you know knowledge at the time was, you don't go directly to SE division. You go to another division, sort of prove yourself, and then SE division will pick you up later. Uh, but uh, actually, in my CT class, two of us went directly to SE division. So. Uh, um, you know, I consider myself at the time very fortunate, and uh, it was interesting that uh, when the CT training uh, concluded, I went to the then division chief to meet him and say hello and meet and greet, and uh, he said, well, and now you're a member of CE division, uh, where would you like to go? And I said, well, you know, frankly, I'd like to go to Moscow, not thinking that would ever be the case, and he said, well, let's see what we can do about that. And he picked up the phone on his desk. He called down to the USSR branch. Uh, that was the, uh, the branch that handled everything to do with, with Moscow. And he talked to the branch chief uh, and said, uh, uh, listen, I'm going to be sending a guy down to you. He's a brand new CT. We just took him on in SE division. Um, see if you can't find him a place in Moscow. And so down I went to, a very, to meet a very perplexed <laughs> uh, USSR branch chief who was trying to figure out well what do we do with you I mean, I've got don't have a, a slot in the pipeline for you right now and then he scratched his head and except for this one here which was a slot that uh, 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 an individual had just been PNG'd from two years before uh, for uh, being caught in flagrante in an operational act and uh, so he said well we've let it cool down for a couple years well I mean, letting it cool down for a couple of years in the eyes of the KGB meant nothing, you know. So basically, my way to get to Moscow was being sent to a, a still very sizzling hot uh, slot. That Is that Marty Peterson's slot? Or no, it no. wasn't Marty's. It was a guy named uh, uh, Vince Crockett who had been uh, uh, handling what we call the CK blip case. Marty was working with Trigon, mm -hmm. and obviously her slot was pretty well fried. That was on fire uh, for her. It, it was still flaming. <laughs> uh, but Vince, uh, that particular slot had uh, had sort of been the, the, the uh, exposure of it had been obscured a little because of Marty's. Mm -hmm. and Marty was on the front page of the Washington Post and whatever. And uh, you know, uh, the operational act that uh, Vince uh, was was uh, involved in didn't get the same type of publicity. Uh, in in the West, as far as like the KGB is concerned, it was just the same mm -hmm. level of uh, exposure. But uh, but at that time, it didn't bother me because that was my ticket to Moscow, and I would take the ticket to Moscow, regardless of how hot it was. And and you know the, the to be honest, uh, I think in many cases cover is something that is. Uh, that is overblown. I mean, you know, uh, many people will say, in, you know, in, in Moscow, a place like Moscow, a denied area, the only thing cover does for you, quite frankly, is get you on the embassy housing list. It, it doesn't perform your work for you. Um, you know, they, they, when, when you look at it, there, there are three, uh, three things that are the most critical factors 
in becoming a successful case officer uh, in an overseas environment. And cover is not one of them. Uh, it's very overblown. The, the, the first one is area knowledge. You have to know that environment you're working in like the back of your hand. I used to joke with people that if I ever lost my job in the CIA, I could become a, a Moscow taxi driver. I mean, I knew the city that well. Um, the, the, the second thing is, is complete or as thorough as possible knowledge of the MO, the modus operandi of the CI service. You, you have to know, for example, running SDRs, if I get out of my car and go into a store, how do they deploy? If I am getting on a bus, how do they deploy? I mean, I, I have to know as, as in much depth as I can exactly how the CI service is going to handle me. So area knowledge, knowledge of the MO of the CI service, and then execution of your tradecraft. Mm -hmm. You have to know your tradecraft cold, and you have to execute it uh, properly. Those three things uh, is, is what success as an overseas case officer is built on. Cover is not one of them. Well, in particular in Moscow, where it really doesn't matter if you're a legitimate State Department official, you're still going to get followed around uh, in many cases. In, in many cases. Yeah. In many cases. You probably won't as, as regularly. This is actually what we built the success of our identity transfer on, right. uh, is the fact that there were people, in this case, in the station who didn't get the pervasive coverage that the case officers got. Uh, our, uh, my, my identity transfer donor, the person whose identity I would use to get out uh, free of surveillance, was one of our technical officers. And we just, it just, we determined uh, after seeing his coverage over several months that he wasn't getting surveillance. So, uh, you know, I took the opportunity to we developed a disguise that made me look well, like And him. he was perfect, long hair, a beard, yep. you know, like yep. he very much had easily well, he, disguisable he, aspects. Well, that, that was, of course, uh, you know, not his choice. Right on purpose, yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we, when once he was identified, uh, he was then condemned, you might say, to the fact that he had to have long hair and a beard for his entire assignment, even though he was not a person who ever had long hair and a beard before his assignment. But the long hair and the beard made it, much easier for me to disguise myself as him than if he had a short haircut and, and no facial hair. So uh, yeah, sometimes being an identity transfer donor was more a curse than it was a blessing. Well, not for, I mean, that was for your first meeting with with Togachev mm -hmm. was, uh, and that's you know been recorded well is that you you went to the embassy like you're going to a dinner party. Yes. Um, <laughs> your poor wife had to sit for six hours quietly pretending as though. There was nothing going on. Did you just yeah. bring a book and just take a nap? Just brought a book. And of course, the, the tech officer had to also to sit there. Because he know. wasn't there anymore, quote unquote. He that was driving around Moscow. Exactly correct. Except yeah. it was actually you. Exactly. Driving around yeah. Moscow. With his, with his uh, cohort, his right. partner, yeah, who was the senior tech officer. But uh, those are the things. And, and it was very important because um, when we came up, that qualifies as what I have called, and I've spoken with you about, as an imaginative scenario, mm -hmm. uh, identity transfer. But the important thing about identity transfer is we closed the loop. Right. Uh, in other words, I went out as the tech officer, I came back in as the tech officer, and then later I left as myself. As far as they were concerned, I was in the embassy, never left the embassy.
Um, so we closed the loop. What that meant is that we could use that again. In theory, that MO could be used again because they didn't know any MO had been used on them right. as far as they were concerned. Um, a lot of imaginative scenarios, uh, you, you, you executed them, but then when they were over, you could never close the loop. Uh, another meeting I had in Moscow was uh, uh, what we call the out-of-country scenario. And I actually, to meet somebody on a, on a Monday night, I, I flew out to Frankfurt on a Thursday and basically on my paperwork saying when I was leaving and coming back, I was supposed to return the following Thursday. Well, instead, from Frankfurt, I got on a train and went to Vienna and then flew back to Moscow from Vienna uh, and uh, conducted the meeting on the Monday. After the meeting, I went back to my apartment. And when I was coming into the apartment, obviously the militia man outside the apartment reported to the OP that uh, Rolf is coming back. They said, no, Rolf's not coming back. He's in Frankfurt till Thursday. The militia man said, no, he's here. And so the next day, they did all their checking with travel documents and found out, indeed, I had come back from Vienna on Monday instead of Frankfurt on Thursday. I couldn't close the loop. Right. So uh, the, 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 the downside of not closing the loop is your ability to, to use that MO again is, is problematic. Uh, you may not be able to, uh, 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 in, in any time in the near term, use that MO to free yourself of surveillance. I can virtually guarantee you that I tried that again a week later. When I came in from Vienna, they would have been, they would have held me at the immigration desk until they had the team assembled outside, right. you know, but, uh, but we just didn't do it again because we hadn't closed the loop. One of the interesting things about what CIA decided to do at this point was that you were a brand new case officer in the most denied area on earth in Moscow. And they put you as the handler of arguably the, the best spy we've ever had in American history working for us. This was on purpose. What was the benefit of having you handle Adolf Tokachev versus a 20-year vet or someone who's been around the block or, or someone else that could possibly you know, have more experience at this point. There's, there's a little um, sort of adage that I use uh, on many occasions. It's, if I had my choice between being smart and being lucky, I'd pick lucky every time. There was a lot of uh, a chance or luck involved. Um, when, the, uh, when, when John Gilsher was preparing to leave Moscow at the end of his tour, we couldn't extend him any longer. Uh, that would raise suspicion mm -hmm. in of itself. Uh, being the first case officer for Tolkachev. The, the COS was obligated to pick uh, his replacement. Well, uh, he, he looked at his list of available case officers, uh, and uh, the, the first thing he needed was somebody who could speak Russian. Well, there were several case officers who didn't have language skills uh, at the level required. There's maybe two of us that did, two or three of us that did. Uh, the, the other one who would have been an easy pick for, uh, for Tolkachev uh, was, was heavily involved in another operation uh, at the time, and uh, he, was, he was virtually committed to that operation. In addition, he only had one year to go in Moscow, and I had two. So if they put him 
in, in the Tokachev case. We'd have to do this all again. We'd in a have year. to do it all again in a yeah. year. And also, who would be who would be doubling up for him on this other case he was involved in, which was a very very significant uh, case that uh, that uh, they figured to be best to leave him on. So in in many uh, instances, the choice of who's going to take over a case uh, has to do a little bit with luck. As far as the uh, the the age is concerned or the experience level. Um, when I got assigned the responsibility of handling Tolkachev, I had just finished handling a case called Utopia, which had been an exfil, had been a pretty complex case uh, that had caused us to, you know, really, you know, pretty well stay ahead of ourselves and be on top of it. Um, and so I think the fact that I had done Utopia substitute a little bit for for lack of chronological experience right. in Moscow and you know sometimes the 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 uh, the lack of chronological experience especially when you're talking about people that are in Moscow is not that big a deal I know when I came back as chief of station about nine or ten years later uh, I had and we we often do send a lot of first tour officers over there um, and you know I had in my office, the chief's office, I had a big conference table installed. And I'd get a cable from headquarters saying, here's a requirement. We want Moscow Station to devote themselves to, you know, carrying out this requirement. I'd look over the cable. And as chief of station, with all my years of experience, I'd come up with what I thought was the solution, the obvious solution, the way we're going to do this. I'd call all my first tour case officers in, sit them around the conference table, give them a copy of the cable, and say, here's our mission over the next couple months. Give me your thoughts. And I'd go around the table asking each one of them for their input on what they thought we should do. And invariably, I would find that by the time we got around the, to the end and they had each spoke their piece, that the solution we came up with as a station was 180 degrees off what my initial <laughs> solution was. In other words, by by using the, the 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 benefits, the knowledge, the imagination of these new hard-charging first tour case officers, first tour meant little because most of our first tour officers are already in their late 20s, early 30s. Right. They've had, they have graduate degrees, they have all sorts of uh, experience in the business world or foreign environments. And uh, you know, any chief of station would be a fool not to try to tap into their abilities. Right, I mean, your experience, you, you had graduate degrees, you had a JD at this point, you were Army Intelligence prior to that. It wasn't like you were yeah. a 23-year-old. It, it wasn't like I was yeah. a kid right off the uh, the block. You know, so, so really that's, uh, it's a little misleading uh, if you say, well, you're a first tour officer. Right. You know, how did you get that, get picked for that? I mean, it was, uh, I like to look back at it and think that, uh, you know, I was the obvious choice. But, uh, <laughs> I, but again, I'll, I'll go back to my first statement. If I could be smart or lucky, I'd pick lucky every time. And, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll be the first one also to admit that a lot of the things that happened to me in, in Moscow and throughout my career, uh, you know, had had a little bit to do with right place at the right time, right. and 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 being uh, 
it's not in men's words being lucky i mean that's a lot of what has to happen you know we will return to our conversation with dave in just one moment let me take a minute to tell you about warby parker warby parker is creating a new concept in eyewear it was founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty goal to create boutique quality eyewear at a revolutionary price point a collaboration between four close friends Warby Parker was conceived as an alternative to the overpriced and bland eyewear available today. Prescription eyewear shouldn't cost you more than a plane ticket or a new iPhone. By circumventing traditional channels and engaging with customers directly through their website and retail stores, Warby Parker is able to provide high-quality, good-looking prescription eyewear at a fraction of the price. And for me, there are really two things that make Warby Parker such a cool company. First, it's eyewear with a purpose. Almost 1 billion people worldwide lack access to glasses. That means that 15% of the global population cannot effectively learn or work, which is crazy because glasses were invented 700 years ago. We should be on top of this. Warby Parker partners with nonprofits like Vision Spring to ensure that for every pair of glasses sold, a pair is distributed to someone in need. They believe that everyone has the right to see. Second, they actually found glasses that work for me. I have a hate hate relationship with glasses my ears are at slightly different heights so when i wear glasses i always look like someone thwacked me across the face i'm the poor guy spending 30 minutes trying on every pair of sunglasses at the drugstore spinny thing you know you've seen me there do you need help like i do take the quiz answer a few questions and they'll suggest some great looking glasses that are totally personalized to fit your face and style this works if it worked for me it'll work for you and to make you feel extra secure, there's a free home try-on program. Order five pairs of glasses and try them on for five days. There's no obligation to buy. Ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. Head to warbyparker.com spycast to order your free home try-on. Take the quiz to find a pair that is perfect for you today. That's warby, W-A-R-B-Y, parker.com spycast. Glasses start at just $95. This includes prescription lenses. Lenses even include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, and blue light filter lenses are also now available. And do you have an iPhone X? Make sure to download Warby Parker's app, where you can use their brand new virtual try-on, allowing you to try on eyeglasses, seeing the realistic color, texture, and size of each style using just your phone. So head to warbyparker.com spycast to order your free home try-on. Where did you end up going after Moscow? There's a time period in the mid-80s where I'm going to eventually get to East Berlin. I think that's a really interesting concept. Well, from from Moscow, I went uh, directly to uh, Singapore. And uh, uh, from Singapore, I spent uh, a good deal of time uh, TDY in the Philippines. And that had to do with my language background, too. We didn't have that many Russian speakers in East Asia division. Well, I think, that, let me let me, let me me interrupt you there, because I think that people hear Singapore and the Philippines and be like, why would you send a Russian specialist there? You weren't there to recruit Filipinos no, and Singaporeans. No, no. You were there because the Russians were there also. Exactly, right. exactly. In other words, if you're assigned to SC division, Soviet and East Europe division, which is now Central Eurasia division, but if you were assigned to SC division uh, as a home base division, uh, and you were going to places like I was, uh, Singapore or Manila, and after Singapore, I went directly to Tokyo. So I spent basically two to three tours in East Asia. Uh, I wasn't chasing the local target. I was chasing the Soviet target. And uh, so 
so after uh, Moscow, I went to Singapore, and from Singapore, I then went PCS, permanent change of station, to Tokyo. After Tokyo, I came back to the United States and spent uh, a tour teaching at Camp Perry. So I was an instructor at Camp Perry. And it was after Camp Perry that I went to East Berlin. So it was, uh, uh, you know, a, basically one tour in the States, not at headquarters, but right. at a teaching assignment. And that's, um, I mean, people think about, people may not think about, people may not understand the efficacy of using stations like Manila or Tokyo. I mean, Trigon was recruited in Bogota. In Bogota. Right? I mean, right. the, really, Tolkachev was the first person that we op, we ran, we the, you know, the United States ran, who started inside Moscow. Right? All the other ones had the, been recruited the elsewhere. The only arguable uh, stretch of that was CK Utopia. Uh, uh, CK Utopia was a walk-in, a volunteer. Uh, in uh, in uh, Warsaw, he 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 appeared at the station in Warsaw. He was only there for a you know basically a couple of days, and then went back to Moscow. But he used that trip to Warsaw to walk into our embassy and volunteer. And uh, they weren't able to run him in Warsaw by any means, but they were able to get enough information that allowed us to contact him back in Moscow. Yeah. So in a sense, he was not recruited outside of Moscow in the classic sense, right. like Bogota or Manila or wherever. Uh, he was actually a legitimate volunteer uh, in a denied area in Warsaw. And, uh, and then we were able to run him back in the, uh, back in the Soviet Union. Well, and I think that's, again, for, for the layperson out there, the benefits is twofold. The first benefit is if you can recruit somebody in the Soviet embassy in Manila, then you can potentially get information while they're there, right? You know, right. whether it's through cable traffic or through just information they're privy to. But also the, the you know, the creme de la creme is that they get reassigned back into the Eastern Bloc or Moscow, and then you have someone in place yeah. in an area. The, the only real, uh, um, how would you say, uh, concern or issue with that statement is is the fact that uh, you know if we we look at the the assets we have run in Moscow, uh, you're you're right in saying that uh, Tolkachev was a legitimate internal volunteer, and many of the other assets that we ran in denied areas were internal volunteers. We have very few assets, Trigon maybe one of them, that we can point to as being acquired outside and then run inside. A couple of reasons for that. Uh, to, to run somebody on the inside, that person has to meet so many thresholds of having the correct access, high level of access, ability to produce, ability to have demonstrated that they can, uh, they can absorb training and, uh, and observe operational security properly. Uh, it's the rare beast that we find in a third country that, that can make those qualifications to be run in Moscow. And then what you find is, even if we identify an individual who we say, yes, he, he meets all the, 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 the markers to be run in Moscow, and so you suggest to him, 
perhaps we can give you an internal communications plan. And his answer is, bullshit. I'm not going to do that. Right. You know, when I get back out again, I'm in Bogota now, my next assignment to Jakarta, let's start up again. Right. But there's no friggin' way I'm yeah. going to I'm going to take Camo in Moscow because most of them realize how tough and difficult right. it is and the, the types of pressures, the types of demands, uh, the types of risks that you're taking by actually running on the home turf of the KGB. And uh, that's, no, uh, that's no small concern. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, we, we, we rarely find assets that are recruited in a third country and that successfully run in Moscow. Not, and the, way, the reason they're eliminated is not so much because, you know, maybe they don't have access, but they... Uh, they just won't do it. They yeah. won't do yeah. it. They won't do it. And... Uh, uh, and or they, they don't have that level of access mm -hmm. that's required. We will not, we, we know, we know among ourselves that, that putting a person at that type of risk, running internally, uh, it, it, we're not going to do it. We're not going to put a person at that level of risk if that risk can't be completely eliminated or balanced off by production, right. by the hope of production. Uh, you know, we, we don't do any activity in a denied area that doesn't have some connection to production. Uh, a perfect example is we used to have a, a signal when a person, let's say yourself, you were recruited in Bogota, and you come back to Moscow, and you accepted an internal communications plan. Um, we would, uh, uh, you know, we would give you a signal called a sign of life signal. And that sign of life said, we wouldn't do anything with you for 12 months. Mm -hmm. Nothing for 12 months. It's a cooling off period. So you'd come back, cooling off period. But in the, and then you'd start up your combo plan 12 months later. We always had, up until 1980, 81 or so, a signal called the sign of life signal that about six months after your return, you would do a sign of life signal. And that would give us some reassurance that you were there, you were right. okay, you were alive and well. And, and we started to think the only purpose of this sign of life signal, an operational act performed by you inside the Soviet Union, was to give us some warm and fuzzy right. feeling of reassurance. Wasn't producing any intel, wasn't doing a thing. It was putting you at risk doing an operational act for absolutely no gain other than our warm and fuzzy. Right. And guess what? At that point, we eliminated sign of life signals because it, 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 it required you to do something for no purpose, right. for no real purpose. And, uh, you know, if you were alive and well at the end of the 12 months, when your, when your actual combo plan kicked in, that would be a sign of life right there. But and then the, we could actually get some... And then we could actually get some intel, yeah. right? So, uh, so we were very, very serious about not, uh, in any way, conducting operational activity uh, or putting anybody at the type of risk that operational activity would put them at uh, for for just a uh, for for no, for no operational production. Right. You know? You've used the word luck a couple times, so I want to ask you uh, if you can let our audience know what years you were the chief of station in East Berlin. 
I was uh, <laughs> I then we'll talk about Chief of Station Moscow for another interesting time I was, I was Chief of Station in East Berlin from 1988 to 91 and the wall came down and yes. of course in 89 I, I remember when uh, my tour in East Berlin was coming to an end and we of course been through all sorts of chaotic times with the collapse of all the communist governments in Eastern Europe including East Germany and I remember getting my orders to Moscow, and uh, we had a going away party in the station uh, in, in the spring, late winter, early spring of, uh, of 91, basically saying farewell to Dave. And I remember telling my colleagues, uh, well, at least I'm going to some place that's stable. Right. <laughs> uh, with, with the absolutely firm belief that whatever had happened in East Europe would never happen in the Soviet right. Union. And sure enough, uh, that was May of 91. Six months, seven August months August later. August actually yeah. like four months right. later, the Soviet Union collapsed. Right. So I, I figured from that point on, any time the agency wanted a government to collapse, they would <laughs> send me out as chief of station and make it happen. But uh, yeah, so no, I, I, I was, I mean, that's beyond good luck to, right. to, to say to a person that you have spent your life focused on the main enemy, the Soviet Union, communism, and the Cold War, and that you would take that interest in Soviet studies, bachelor's degree, master's degree, a tour in Moscow, and then end up as chief of station in East Berlin when the wall came down, and follow that by chief of station in Moscow when the Soviet Union collapsed. Frankly, when I finished in Moscow, I'm not only myself, but my, my, many of my colleagues recognize there's, there's no way you can right. top that. that. That's it. You're, you're basically, you know, what are you going to do after that as, as an encore? Well, there's nothing. So. Right, yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's about as good as it gets, right? So I was, yeah, I was basically finished after that. <laughs> we'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Well, let me ask you, though, about the East Berlin side, because when the wall comes down, it was absolute chaos there, where you now have the Stasi running around trying to either disappear or you're trying to recruit them, you know, you're trying to find out who they might be since a lot of them have kind of tried to go into the wayside. And then you've got defectors on top of defectors on top of defectors. And many of them Soviets 
who, and I've read where you've talked about the fact that um, it just got to the point where you're just like another one. And there was this almost right. almost turning away legit people because it was just so frustrating getting it so was, many people. It was people. an absolute madhouse. Nobody is ever trained to handle, you know, a half a dozen walk-ins a week. And uh, I learned a lot because, you know, you're, you hinted at the fact that you're, you're almost tending to run through these walk-ins to a point that you're turning some of them away uh, or, or potentially turning them away. Uh, in, in one case, I had an individual come into the embassy in East Berlin, a Russian, and I went to the walk-in room to meet with him. And I said, oh, what, uh, what do you want? And he says, well, I want to go to America. And I kind of said to him facetiously, yes, you and you know, 20,000 other Russians. And I said, look, the UNHCR, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, is about five blocks down. You might go and talk to them. And as he was getting ready to leave the embassy, he said, I really thought you'd be interested in me because uh, I'm, a, uh, you know, an, uh, I'm a MiG-29 instructor pilot. And I said, <coughs> well, please come back and sit down. You buried down. the lead a little bit there, and, buddy. Uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, even a person at that point with my level of experience was kind of not, it, it shook me back into reality because I wasn't paying the kind of attention that I should have and then later did to the to these assets that were that were coming in. Right but I've read left. that story. He was in like, T-shirt and shorts. He was. And like, he, he was looked in, like a, he, another guy. He looked guy. like a guy heading for uh, a Hawaii vacation, yeah. you know. And uh, it was another interesting thing with him, in in the sense that uh, um, I used to meet him on Sunday afternoons in Leipzig, a city south of, of Berlin. And uh, I uh, I went down to Leipzig one time, and sitting on the bench where he usually sat, was he he was there with uh, a woman, a young woman who it turned out was his wife. And he had taken the uh, initiative to, to uh, wanted to introduce her to me, and, and, and which is something that we generally don't encourage, you know? We want the, uh, uh, we don't want him to spread it because we don't have any control over the wife. Right. She might tell it in her bridge club or whatever. And the then, more people that know a secret. People, yeah, yeah, there you go. So, uh, but it was a fait accompli, there she was. So I figured we'd take advantage of this by uh, uh, by bringing her in on the on the the whole plan, and I reviewed with her our Camo plan, and and she grasped it. She was very smart and intelligent. And um, about uh, three or four weeks later, I went to our meeting on Sunday in Leipzig, and he wasn't there. Nobody was there. I went back to another meeting, and he still wasn't there. We finally had one. We had a final alternate, uh, where I would go to the little. East German farming village outside of his Soviet air base in East Germany. And I was going to be there at, you know, eight or nine o'clock at night. It was in December. It was the typical spy night, cold rain, you know, a miserable night. And um, waiting for him to show up at this village. Nothing, nothing. I'm going to get ready and get back in my car and head back for Berlin and call it a wash and then go back to the drawing board as to how do we revitalize this thing. And sure enough, I see him coming on his bicycle through the rain on this miserable night. And as he got closer, I realized that's not him, that's his wife. And so she arrives, and she is shaking. She is miserably wet and cold. I throw her in my car, turn the heater on, and I ask, where is, where is he? 
And she said, well, his mother died back in the Soviet Union, and he was called back to handle arrangements for the funeral, etc. So he hasn't been here. And uh, I laid on with her another comma plan. We got everything squared away. She went back to the base. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't drive her in my car to right. the Soviet base, but she had to ride the bike back. <laughs> but but, but it, what it pointed out to me is here was something which, again, was not accepted practice, bringing the wife in on the, on the whole arrangement and the plan. But in this case, uh, the fact that we had done that allowed her to come to that you know, right. that alternate meeting and, and, and revitalize our commo plan. Had she not been brought in on the case, you know, chances are we would have had a lot of more, uh, you know, scurrying to do to get the case back on track. So you just, you just never know uh, with these, uh, these things. I, one, one particular case, you're learning all the time as a case officer. One particular case, I was giving uh, Tropel cameras to a KGB officer. Tropel is a small spy camera. It looks like a, a Bic lighter. Mm -hmm. And in each, each uh, Tropel, there is, a, say, 60 exposures of film. So I gave him two of them. And that means 120 exposed photos. And he's a KGB major. And I, I you know, give him the cameras, and he says, good, I'll, I said, put, you know, put, as much sensitive information as you can on these and bring them back to me. And the next week we have another meeting and he brings them back. And he said, but uh, you know, I mean, I, I got them, they're all filled up, they're done. But I, it was a little tight because when I took the pictures, when I used them, there was uh, four or five other guys in the office with me. And I said, what? <laughs> uh, and and uh, again, I assumed that as a KGB major, his definition of op security was going to be relatively the same as mine. Right, you think so? You don't take pictures with a, tro a spy camera in an office with five other intelligence officers around you. Uh, but again, that goes back to we're learning all the time. Uh, and I, I, again, like my, my walk-in in the Hawaiian shorts, I was ready to send him out to the UNHCR. And here, I was issuing cameras to a guy that I didn't give him any security lessons with it because he's a KGB major. Right, you'd think they would have taken care of that. I would have assumed his understanding of OPSEC was the same as mine, uh, but clearly it wasn't. So even as a senior officer, you're constantly learning. You're constantly uh, absorbing you know, uh, right. things that... Uh, you, Lessons, lessons are being taught. So, uh, yeah, yeah, you never, you never stop learning. Yeah. Well, let me let me ask you about that the the Moscow coup and uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. Because that was, again, like you said, you'd spent the majority of your adult life, not all of your adult life, thinking about the Soviets as the enemy, and you are now there watching that. Well, of course, no one knew at the coup that Soviet Union was going to collapse a little while later, and no one saw the coup coming. I read somewhere, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you found out the chief of station in Moscow about the coup the day after because of, you know, just in the news or? Well, no, no. I mean, here, here's the, the reality of that. And I know we took a lot of heat because, and me personally, that the, the chief of station in, East, in, in Moscow at the time did, did not know about the coup before it happened. I can tell you this. The coup plotters didn't know about the coup right, yeah. the day before it happened. 
essentially, uh, the uh, the, a, the new law, the law of the unions, was going into effect uh, over this weekend. That, that that meant that each of the republics could declare independence from the Soviet Union the next week. That would mean essentially they, they could anticipate the breakup of the Soviet right. Union, and so uh, a bunch of uh, a bunch maybe four or five old hardcore communist uh, officials got together on a Saturday, got themselves plastered drunk, and decided on Saturday night to have a coup. They called out some units that they thought would follow their orders and, and, and you know, take certain actions. And Nobody, no, no, none of the, the Russian radio stations, none of the newspapers, nobody, no other government officials. They were taking this all on their own initiative, these old hardcore communist guys. And so finally, when whatever it was they were trying to mount got mounted on Sunday, uh, nobody knew about it. Right. I mean, CNN didn't know about it. I didn't know about it. Nobody knew about it. Most of us found out about it when we were going into work Monday morning, you know? Uh, there was very, very little that uh, gave us an indication anything was going wrong. They didn't I mean, talk about a coup. Normally, you're going to have a coup, you're gonna take over the radio stations. Right, you're right. gonna take over the roads to the airport and block roads to the airport. You're gonna, you're gonna take over any means of communication. And, and none of these things were done. When Gorbachev so, was out at his dacha. Gorbachev was down the Black Sea yeah. with his, yeah, his family. So, um, yeah, that was a little bit of uh, one of these things that, uh, you know, after the fact, it's, it's fun to find a whipping boy that you didn't know about this, you didn't know about that. Uh, the reality is the coup, the August 19th coup, uh, as I said, the day before it happened, wasn't even known to the coup plotters. Right. Uh, it was, a, it was a, a typical Russian sort of what you do when you get drunk on a, on a Saturday night if you are an old hardcore communist who believes the Soviet Union is going to be splintered the following week. And that's what you do. They didn't do it right. There was no pre-planning. Uh, Monday morning, I sent my station officers out on the road. Go to this radio station. Go to that radio station. Go to the airport. Go here. Go there. And uh, they all went out. They hopped in their cars and took off. Came back and reported that none of these things that should have been done, we're done. Right. And the whole thing fell apart, you know, so, you know. I, my background is nuclear intelligence, and so my, my obvious question, I've even heard this asked before, was who had control of the Soviet nuclear weapons? And, and was that, yeah. was, was Washington calling, screaming to find that out? Was that a question that needed to be answered at that point? Uh, well, first of all, Washington knew very well we had no penetrations of the Soviet nuclear command structure. Uh, if the embassy had any entree into that area, you know, I'm not aware of it. The, the, this was a very, very serious issue. Who, who had control or command and control of it during the coup? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, probably there were some senior military officers who had that responsibility, who were not affected by the coup, who maintained that responsibility. Right. It wasn't a very, very, uh, it wasn't a very well, uh, you know, orchestrated thing. And I think command and control was down at the 
you know, at the general level, and the generals never heard about the coup, so they, they just maintained what they had. But it was a real issue later on because the Soviet nuclear structures and the, 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 uh, the storage facilities, et cetera, were dispersed all over the country. And in most cases, uh, at each of these locations where nuclear material was stored, uh, sometimes small portable devices, uh, they were commanded by lieutenant colonels. Right. And it, it's demonstrable that many of these lieutenant colonel level officers for the next couple of months never got paid. They weren't getting any money. They weren't getting, I mean, it was a total chaotic situation. Not that we could have influenced or, or done anything about it, but the real concern was that these colonels who weren't getting paid, whose families were going hungry and uh, you know, who had the keys to open up the warehouses uh, would be approached by uh, uh, terrorist organizations right. or, or mafia groups, organized crime, whatever, and, uh, and, and they would be paid inordinate sums to just turn their backs from, from 10 o'clock to midnight uh, just turn your back. It's, it's not that the colonel's being asked to sell nuclear weapons. It's not that he's being asked to get involved in a plot. He's just being given 20,000 US dollars to turn, turn a blind eye. And what happens during those two hours or three hours or whatever would be unknown to him. So uh, uh, yeah, that was really the concern about the Soviet nuclear uh, you know, weapons arsenals is uh, not so much who was in control of them during the actual coup, because the actual coup was a, it was, it was more of a, a circus event than anything else. Um, but it was who was controlling those uh, nuclear supply right. uh, locations five, six months or, or two months out from the coup. What was it? What was the assessment at Moscow Station and back in Washington about the new Russian government? You know, I mean, that was that had to have been a key, like the number one collection need was what is Yeltsin going to do? Who the hell is you know surround him with? You know, who's actually in charge of things? What direction? Because for I remember this because this is when I was old enough to understand what was happening around the world that there was a hope that you would actually transition into a quasi-democracy or at least a Western-leaning hybrid of some sort. Um, obviously, in 2000, that all goes out the window when Putin becomes, but for that decade, there's a lot of unknowns. Well, there was, it's interesting that you, uh, you raised that question because uh, the, uh, the chiefs of station years before the Moscow coup a chief of station were given a mechanism by the DCI, Director of Central Intelligence, whereby every report that comes out of a station normally has to be based on asset reporting. It's all sourced to an asset, to a recruited asset. That's what we do. We recruit assets. They provide information. But the, uh, the uh, CIA chief of station has a report mechanism that he can use himself, and the source is not, uh, you know, the, a source's cryptonym. The source is the senior intelligence officer on the scene, which is the chief of station. 
the DCI gave every chief of station this mechanism. So when something comes up, fast breaking, mm-hmm. you know, something that we don't have an asset to confirm it, but the COS can see it on the ground happening, he can write a cable a report directly back to the DCI. Over the years, it didn't just go to the DCI. It got, it went to the DDO. It went mm-hmm. here. It went there. It got spread. In fact, eventually, it got to a point where the intelligence community was getting the COS's direct reports to the DCI. Well, after the coup, I was made aware that headquarters wanted these reports on a regular basis, a weekly basis. So I started, and I had a, I had an extraordinarily capable reports person in the station at the time, PhD in Russian studies, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I'd sit in with him in my office. We would exchange thoughts and ideas about where this whole thing was going. And uh, fortunately, we were both in lock-solid agreement on where it was going. And he'd write up these reports. And I'd sign them. They'd be my reports. They'd go out as the chief of station reports, but they were written by a very intelligent guy. Um, In any event, uh, uh, we were both absolutely convinced that Yeltsin was a, uh, a, a, a extremely capable populist politician. He knew how to read the people. He was out there dancing mm-hmm. with them. He was, he he had the peoples uh, in in you know, uh, he somehow understood them. They understood him. Well, just standing on the tank in front of the White House and that just whole that, that whole that time, image that, yeah. that imagery that Yeltsin put across. There was a person in the, uh, in the uh, Russian parliament named Hospolatov who was very much against Yeltsin and who everybody thought by December after the August coup, uh, Yeltsin had sidelined Gorbachev. Yeltsin was kind of consolidating his power. And they thought when this Congress of People's Deputies met in December that Hospolatov would basically turn the lights off, overthrow Yeltsin, he would take over, and we'd be back into the, the old communist people would retake over. And my reports from Moscow were saying absolutely the opposite. No, not only will Yeltsin be here for this term, he's going to re- win re-election in 1994 and be around to the next term, which it turned out in retrospect he was. Mm-hmm. But the, the bottom line is, is that uh, uh, even though Washington may not think so, Yeltsin has got this thing made he's you now after yeltsin putin we, we were it was too right. far off to even predict that putin would take over but the point is we were confident yeltsin would maintain his position the, the, the washington was not confident so that put us at odds with washington and i can remember one report i finally wrote after the congress met in december and i basically concluded saying yeltsin's going to be around and sent in in one of my in my channel, my COS channel. I, I'm not using the name of the channel because it's. Right. But the the bottom line is, uh, I sent that in, and and because it is that channel, the COS is direct channel to the DCI. The the divisions in this case CE division does not have the ability to non disseminate if I send in a report from an asset and they have other reports that contradict the asset, the CE division can say, no, we're not going to disseminate. Right. Since this is my opinion, yeah. 
I'm sitting in my opinion. It's my opinion. You can't non-dissent my opinion. It is what it is. And I don't say it's otherwise. I say this is the this is the conclusion of the report of the senior intelligence officer C, which you can relieve me of those duties if you want, right. but until you do, I am the senior intelligence officer on the scene. Well, it we went a couple days and I didn't get a dissent notice on it. And finally I, I wrote in and said, Well, I don't see any dissent notice on my uh, recent report. And they came back and said, uh, well, um, since uh, your report is not uh, consistent with current Washington opinion, we decided not to dissent it. You what? You don't have that, you don't have that choice. Right. Well. And that goes outside the CIA, too. I mean, oh, that's the, yeah. The White House. At I mean, first, they didn't. They, mm -hmm. The COS reports were right internal in the CIA. Once they became, it became more widely known that the COS had this mechanism, they were disseminated all over them. So, so you know, you know, basically, I got bent out of shape because, in my opinion, headquarters was exercising a judgment over my reports that they had no license to exercise. Right. Uh, they, of course, were of a different opinion. And, and do you think that this perception, was every, from everything I know, the Reagan administration had been hard-charging, especially since Gorbachev, well, the summit meetings and everything else, and pushing forward and trusting the Soviets more. The Bush administration kind of went a little backwards and where he was much more hesitant to believe that anything was actually changing. Yeah. Do you think that there was... Influence is the wrong word. Do you think that the, the DCI, that in, in the perception that Yeltsin was not someone that we could be working with, that he was not going to be with there, was more of an old school thinking versus the well, change that was the, that was the State Department's thinking, yeah. too. It was not only the agency's thinking, then the analysts in the agency, the mainline analysts, but it was the, um, the State Department's thinking. I know we had a, you know what the difference between a CODEL and a staff DEL is. We had a staff DEL staffers from uh, the, the senator the, the the house came over to visit us and in, in Moscow embassy at the time and one of the things they do is they stop in the station and visit with the station and uh, and they came to see the station and they said well what do you think about the things that are developing here now and I told them exactly what I put in my report which had not been dissent mm -hmm. At which point, when I'm saying this, my deputy is sitting in the back of the room going, <laughs> stop. And, uh, but in any event, uh, they said, well, that's, why don't you ever report this stuff? We've never heard this. And I said, well, I did report it. It got non-descend. Yeah. And uh, so uh, they went back and immediately queried headquarters, do you have a report from the COS that you did not dissem on this issue of Yeltsin's, uh, you know, um, ability to, to get on top of this and to, and to stay in power? And so once the Senate had it, uh, the, uh, obviously the staff Dell reported there was such a report, mm -hmm. SE had no choice but to cough it up. Right. So they had to cough up a report that they had decided to not dissent because it was not consistent with Washington thought. Mm. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it, it, I mean, some, I mean, some politics it, gets involved in Needless to say, it, uh, it, uh, 
where a lot of people rubbed the wrong way and you know it, it caused some needless uh, you know dust ups back in Washington but the, the, the bottom line is at the time I'd be willing to say at that time December of 1991 that as far as that Yeltsin versus uprisings in the street and a return to the old communist ways if you were on one side of that argument or another the State Department headquarters analysts and most of the Washington IC were on the side of we're, we're all screwed because Yeltsin's going to get overthrown and and uh, we'll be back in the old communists the whole the old bad old days right. are going to return the only entity not saying that was the station. Was Moscow station, yeah. And they were basically putting the muzzle on us until the staff Dell got back and said, do you have a report that says that? Which so. is crazy because the, your whole point is to do exactly that. The whole point of being as a Moscow CIA station is to report back on what you think and what you perceive and what is going on on the ground. Well, and that's true, but uh, the only problem is, is headquarters didn't, didn't disagree with the fact that I should do that. What they disagreed with was the, the dis level of dissemination it should get when it got back there. Right. They, they were not allowing it to leave the, the building. But in any event, that's, that's, that's ancient history yeah. now. Well, well, that's what we like talking about, ancient history here. Yeah. There, there, there's a lot more we can talk about, and, and we'll have to have you back at some point in the future. We just we can't finish it up now, but I, I really appreciate the time, and this is fascinating. I and mean, again, you, you kind of, luck is a great word to kind of describe kind of where you are, talking about being in the right place at the right time and, and not knowing it was that's coming. That's for sure. That's for sure. And, uh, you know, it would be interesting to have a chance to dig deeper into uh, some of the things, uh, the, the rocks we turned over and the things we did in... Uh, East Germany, subsequent to the the fall of the wall, is it, with the out kind of the now humongous splurge in CIA memoirs. Have you ever thought about doing one? You you have the old school mentality of kind of. Nope, I'm, there's no, there's nothing like that in my future. So there's too many of them out there already. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking to us. I mean, at least you're getting this information out through us, and we really appreciate it, Dave. My pleasure. Yeah. Really great to have you here on SpyCast. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Thanks again to Warby Parker for their continued support of SpyCast. Remember, order five pairs of glasses and try them on for five days. There's no obligation to buy. Ships free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. Head to warbyparker.com slash spycast to order your free home try-on. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.